to the House of Minds, a podcast experience where we dive into individuals' journeys and mindsets with the intention and potential to bring you keys to unlock and expand your mind into new realities and possibilities, because we can all learn something from everyone. All you must bring is a desire to learn, an open mind, and the trust that the universe is always working for you. What will the House of Minds bring you today? We are live. Welcome everyone to another episode of House of Minds. My name is Christina and I'm the podcast host. Today we'll be speaking with Crystal Waltman, who is an athlete, speaker, coach, and an award-winning author of the book Quitting to Win, a proven plan to let go of bad habits, learn to feel and love yourself, which won Amazon bestseller and health book of the year. Crystal shares her message of faith over fear and knows the value of taking care of herself so she can be of service to others. Recovering out loud, Crystal has been speaking for the past five years, sharing her experience, strength, and hope. She is a contributor to many different platforms, including sobriety, fitness, nutrition, and also offers online courses. So we'll be diving into her experience with writing the book, getting some juicy tidbits on the process of healing from addiction, and then also allowing the conversation to just flow where it may. Thank you so much for appearing on the podcast today, Crystal. Well, thank you, Christina Lynn for having me. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. So I'm going to start us off before we lead into conversation, just by doing a one to two minute mindfulness practice. That way our full presence and essence can penetrate into the conversation today. Okay, so I'll have us ground our feet if we're in a seated position. So bring your feet down to the ground, close your eyes and then bring your hands to your thighs. We'll go palms down just for a little bit more grounding energy. Start to find your breath. And draw your full awareness and attention to each inhale and each exhale. Start to lengthen and deepen your breath. Start to hear your breath. And start to feel your breath in that space right between your upper lip and your nose. Observing the inhales, watching your exhales. Then draw your attention to the sounds in the room, to your body, the length of your spine, the weight of your hips. bringing your full presence into your body, into the room. So that our highest essence may come through in conversation, setting an intention 
to allow for flow, empowering conversation, and any other insights that may want to come through. Taking one final deep breath. As you draw the air in, pull it all the way down into your belly. Allow it to expand for a moment. Pause at the top. And then let your breath go. Full presence. All right, so we all have a story to tell. And that is actually one of the reasons I started this podcast. So I love that we get to share your story today. And we can get the full story by reading your book. And after reading your book, I would say that you have so many stories to share that led you to who you are today. Um, A lot of valuable insight. And I would encourage all listeners to read the book because there's a lot, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, where or when would you say that your story of healing started and what type of pain led you to that, that point? And I know that we can get the full story in the book. So maybe just a brief overview of where your healing started and when your real pain, when the pain kicked in enough that you were like, okay, I'm going to do something about this. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sick and I was sick and tired of being sick and tired basically. And that brought me to my bottom, but my, my deepest pain started, uh, when my best friend Scarlett committed suicide, it was then that I realized like that the human's greatest ability was to mask their emotions. And I was with her the night that she died and nobody saw it coming. And we were high achievers and collegiate athletes. And I didn't have the coping skills to deal with that. So yeah. after losing my best friend, it just really start started a deep spiral for me. I, I didn't have a connection with a higher power. I didn't have the coping skills. There was just so many unanswered questions. I mean, it just, it caught me and the whole community by surprise. And, you know, I just kept numbing. I numb, was numbing more and more um, at that point in my life. And yeah, I remember the reading back through your book, I remember you sharing that throughout your childhood as well. Um, there wasn't really a, a place for where I remember you mentioning belonging. Um, and I feel like when we, we don't belong often and we don't have the coping skills and the trust in the higher power that can also lead into the detrimental spiral where we're essentially self-sabotaging ourselves. Yeah. And the place that I felt that I belonged the most was on the softball field and, you know, being out there and performing. And I grew up with like a performance God. So when I performed, I was loved when I got good grades, I was loved. And so that was where I was getting my love from, but off the field, um, I suffered from great anxiety and, and then also turned into depression. Um, but that was really masked by being such a high performer. Yes. Yeah. And then the, the coping, the coping skills that the, the world tells us that is okay to, to cope with as well. Um, so you've definitely come a long, long way and long journey, and I'm really excited to dive into all of it. 
um, your vulnerability in sharing your stories that grew you to who you are in the present moment is really beautiful and inspiring to see because your vulnerability opens others up to also be vulnerable and admit and turn to the honesty of looking at themselves and accepting. And then that starts their own journey of healing as well. And by opening up your heart, you essentially give permission to others to do so. What do you think was a key point for you or a necessary ingredient to start to change the tide of, of the shame and guilt and move more into a space of acceptance to move into the process of healing? Yeah. So, um, when I was around the age of 20, I got my, I had one of my first incidents where I got, um, pulled over for drinking and driving. And I was assigned to, um, go to these court ordered classes, which in turn were mm. um, this step recovery program. And so that's where I first learned about the disease of alcoholism. And I sat in those classes and listened to the questions that they ask you. And they give you these 12 questions and it says, if you say yes to four or more of these, you know, you might be in problems with your drinking. You might, you might be an alcohol abuser. You might be genetically wired differently. And it was, and then that's when I learned about it. And then it took me another 20 years to get back to the room to realize I am wired like that. And alcohol does not serve me. You know, I didn't realize that not everybody had blackouts and not everybody you know, turned into a different person when they drink, you know, some people can drink just fine for me. If I was happy, I would drink. If I was sad, I would drink. Like as soon as I started to feel uncomfortable in my skin and get a little restless, I would want to drink to take the edge off. And, you Your know, coping after, skill. yeah, it was definitely my coping skill is my go-to for everything. And growing up, I mean, living where I live, in the suburban community is very much a mommy wine culture and alcohol is a progressive disease, right? So mm-hmm. it just slowly creeps up on you. And what would be, you know, one glass today ends up being one bottle, not putting the cork in it. And then, you know, you're waking up with these hangovers and the shame and guilt, and it just slowly creeps up on you. And I, I saw some of my friends lose their license uh, lose their ability to drive their kids for a year. Yeah. And yeah. I was able to stop drinking when I got pregnant. And when I got pregnant, I stopped drinking. Then I breastfed for a while. So there was a good two year period there where I didn't drink. And then after I decided to stop breastfeeding, I'm like, okay, I got this. I healed myself because I had taken such a long time off. Well, yeah. it was even worse for me. I mean, after being pregnant, my body just never metabolized it the same. And then now you're a mother. And so the shame and guilt was even more, but I was, it's still part of this mommy wine culture where you, you almost tell yourself like you deserve it, right? You made it to three o'clock in the afternoon. Now it's time to have a drink or your husband's out of town. It's, you know, you're feeling lonely. Oh, it's okay to have a drink, you know, and thinking that you're a better, better mother or better friend or better parent when you're drinking, because you'll get down on the floor and play with the kids or whatever, you know, and that is just not the truth. Those are the lies that we tell ourselves to keep ourselves sick. And I was just sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I had to surrender and ask for help. Um, You know, my husband was not supportive in the fact that wanting me to, you know, go to a step program, you know, he didn't understand and people and normal people, what they call normies don't understand 
the, like the way that your brain is wired and you can't just stop and stop thinking about it, you know, because even when you take the alcohol out of the situation, alcohol is, but a symptom of the problem, then you get to start to peel back the layers and see what is really the problem. Well, my problem was really more anxiety and depression or the sense of not being enough. So once you stop the alcohol, then you have to start dealing with, you know, the real issues. And that was really the gift of sobriety. The gift of sobriety is to deal with those issues. I love that you, you bring that up because it is the the coping skills and you've already mentioned this in everything that you've said along the way is when we don't know how to process our feelings, then we use other coping skills and we'll continue to cover up those feelings to not have to face them. And the real test to it or not test, but the real portion of the healing from addiction comes when you have to face those feelings. It's not the act of just stopping. It's actually facing all of those feelings and learning to overcome the feeling portion of it for true, true healing from, from any, be it any addiction, um, not just alcohol. And you also bring up a great point that I, that uh, when you're sick and tired, that's when you'll change. My life coach has always said that when you're in enough pain, you'll change. It's just a different point for everybody. So that rock bottom is a different point. It hits at a different point, but it's that pain that can motivate us to change. And I love that in one of your chapters, you started it with this quote, um, Oh, I thought I wrote it down because I knew I wanted to bring it up. What if, what if pain just like love was another, oh, do you remember like, the quote? Yeah. That uh, brave people visit. Yes. Yeah. And that is um, out of, that's from Glennon Doyle, okay. a love warrior. And she talks about what if pain is a, a place that brave people visit like to, to feel your pain. Right. So yeah in the title of my book, quitting to win, and then a proven plan to let go of bad habits, but then learn to feel right. So you have to learn how to feel that pain and what do you do with that? And how do you, and you said two really great things that your life coach says, but you know, it's either the pain of same or the pain of change. Yes. And, and when the pain becomes great enough, then you'll make that change. And for me, the pain just became great enough. My daughter was around four years old when I decided to surrender and basically give up everything, you know, to, to get help and, and, and deal with what was going on because from the outside, my life was still very well put together. Um, but from the inside, I was an emotional basket case, daily roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it, sometimes it makes it even harder when you're external, it's easier to deny the problem when your external looks fine. Right. Um, right. <laughs> like, yeah. it, it really is. Denial is a, is a, a great, uh, self-sabotage tool. <laughs> so that is what, cause I wondered the quitting to win and how you say sometimes success is, um, like stopping, letting yes. go, surrendering. So the quitting to win title comes from that where you're, you're, you're surrendering essentially. Yeah. And success can come from what you don't do. And then, you know, through, through the step program, you learn boundaries and, um, the first 12 steps are how to deal with yourself. And then the other part of the traditions is how to deal with others. 
And just because you heal doesn't mean the people around you are going to heal and you can't delete everybody out of your life and nor would you want to, you know, but you want to figure out how to operate in a healthy space for everyone and how to not hurt yourself and not let others hurt you. So then there, there comes the boundaries and once boundaries are established, it it makes life so much easier. I mean, just for yourself, because you're not um, caught up in indecision. Yeah. You know, when, when you have clear boundaries and I guess that's just what I didn't have, I didn't have clear boundaries. And, um, so therefore I was always like in this state of angst, you know, and that's just not a good place to be. Yeah. And indecision. And I read on one of your, I think it was a press release. I'd read a comment from your sister that you're living your best life by setting those boundaries and it's, it's true when we can set clear boundaries because it then it communicates who we are to the outside world and how we operate. And we're the only ones who can set those boundaries and decide those. And to- yeah, before you can set them with the outside world, you have to first set them with yourself and, you know, mental illness, having a mental illness or what they're calling mind health now, um, you know, I'll just give you my top five boundaries. And these are for myself, um, water, sleep, eat movement and connection. Like I have to do those five things and they're in that order, you know, on purpose. But if I don't do those five things every day, then I'm not good for anybody else anyways. Right. So those are the boundaries for myself (laughs) just to maintain my mental health every single day. And I'll, I'll just tell you again, a water, because our body's made of water. And if we're walk, most people are walking around in a state of dehydration and you, you can have a headache or you can, you know, feel a certain kind of way. If you're dehydrated sleep, you need, you need a really good sleep hygiene and protecting your sleep is very important. And that, you know, comes with boundaries. And with today's technology, it's important that, you know, you turn off all of your stuff and just protect your sleep because I lived in a state of never being able to get in that REM sleep. Like when you're drinking all the time, your body doesn't get into that recovery. You know, it's like more in a survival and a depletion. Yeah. Um, so yeah. now that I, now that, you know, or now that, you know, you know, the feeling of what it feels like to get a good night's rest, like you want to protect that. And then the third thing is food, you know, yeah, eating versus feeding, you know, you want to eat stuff that's high nutrients and that good with enzymes and that will build your body up and that will replenish you as opposed to just, you know, feeding yourself something in a package. Um, the fourth thing is connection. So connection with my friends and my higher power. It's important that I call three, you know, girlfriends a day or sober friends and just say, how are you? As soon as I get in my head, I'll reach out and call somebody and just say, how are you? And then the last one's movement. Like you have to, I have to circulate every day. It's just whether I go for a walk. I mean, for me, it's yoga three to five times a week, or, you know, at minimum it's going for a 10 minute walk, but you, you have to help yourself, help yourself, you know, and circulate, get outside, get some oxygen, walk every day, just those simple things. And it's nothing that takes a gym membership. It's nothing that, you know, costs money. Those five things you can do for yourself every day. And those are the boundaries that I have for myself before I even deal with the outside world. <laughs> and I, then, the, then there comes a whole nother set of boundaries. <laughs> yes. Yes. Good point. Good point. <laughs> 
Good point. And those are essentially acts of self-love, I would say. And it goes along with the saying of fill your cup first before you can even be of any help to anybody else. And those are, are essentials there. If you look at like what our bodies and our brains essentially needs, those th- that like really takes it down to the essentials of what we need to fill ourselves up to be of value to others. Exactly. I mean, and you know, that being a, a great yoga teacher and we met in the yoga studio and, yeah. and you teach a great class. So it's just, it's been a pleasure to know you. Thank you. Thank Yeah. Self-love is definitely a big, big part of it. Tell me about, so with your process from recovering, does, does the self-love kick in as your emotional sobriety grows? And you talk a lot about emotional sobriety in your book in general. And I feel like that's a very big theme and overall very, very important component to healing any type of addiction or mind health or mental illness. So would you mind defining what emotional sobriety is and how that helped like your process with it and then how it's helped you form these self-love components? Yeah. So emotional sobriety. So sobriety means, you know, to not be under the influence of anything. And then when you put the emotional part behind it, it means that you're sober in all of your thoughts, right? So you wake up with your good morning prayer, you do the next right thing. So then you can be of service to others. You make sure to keep your side of the street clean every day, you know, after going through the steps and making your amends, then there's a process that you go through every day. Did I wrong anybody? Do I know, owe an apology? Um, is there anything that I need to write wrong? And, you know, and then have your good night prayer. Um, so staying once you go through the step process and get everything cleaned up, then there's still a daily maintenance. And this is, this is a a disease that I will have forever. It's not something you ever heal from. Mm -hmm. And to stay in emotional sobriety is the daily goal, right? So, because it's easy to just be sober. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I'm not going to say that it's not easy to just be sober, but for the first couple of years of my sobriety, sobriety was all I could do was to just be sober. Like physically, I, you know, I couldn't even get to the emotional part yet. It took me about two and a half years before I was able to get to that emotional sobriety. Um, so now I help people who are in sobriety. So you're sober. So what now, what, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with this gift of sobriety? Like, how do you, you know, give back and stay in emotionally sober state throughout the day. Yes. Like pay, you almost pay it forward, but then it also helps you because it's benefiting both of you to, to stay in that emotional sobriety place. Yeah. And you always need somebody like I need a mentor ahead of me and I need a sponsee behind me. Um, and that really keeps you tethered because you want somebody who's walked your walk and that can, you know, call your BS at any minute and say, okay, this wasn't right. You need to check that, check your thoughts, you know, and then you also need to be helping somebody else because you see somebody in that desperate state and, and you're able to identify yourself, right? Cause it takes one to know one yes. type thing. Yes. And, it, and you have to go back to the meetings and be at the support groups to see the desperateness of when you came there. Right. Yes. So when you first get, yeah. To remember wh- how far you've come. Yeah. That goes along with forgive, but don't forget. Cause it's very easy to, 
just to spiral back. So it keeps you right there in that forefront of this was me, this, this is not me anymore. I'm going to celebrate that fact and also celebrate that, that, um, that they're here and, and almost have a heart of empathy for those two that, that are coming in and are in those positions where you were once before. That's right. Yeah. So would you say emotional sobriety is part of the process of learning to process your emotions versus numbing? Yes. That's pretty much being the master of yourself, um, being able to live in emotional sobriety. And it means like you can go in any situation anywhere and not be rocked. Right. If there's people drinking or if there's people, no matter what's happening, and I don't shy away from dark situations because that is when you're, my light will shine the brightest. Right. And when you're in those situations, so I don't shy away from people drinking or events or anything like that. If I have a reasonable responsibility to be there, I will still show up and just do me. Right. It doesn't matter what anybody else is doing, but it's interesting how people will be drawn to you. And they're like, what do you mean? You don't drink. Why aren't you drinking? And then as long as they have their drinks, they're fine. And they go on, but you know, they're the ones that might loop back in a month or two months or three months, you know, and then reach out and say, how'd you do it? Yeah. Yeah. You're the light in the, in the darkness. I love that. I love that. That's such, it's a beacon of hope, especially in a society where a lot of the addictions not necessarily are accepted, but there's a lot of shame and guilt around them and they're not acknowledged. And there is, there is ways to learn to overcome it. Um, and it, it takes one to no one, (laughs) right. It takes one to no one. And it's still, um, all the substances are very romanticized in advertising. And you know, my big picture along with being part of the sold out youth foundation and going into high schools and getting kids to commit to abstinence for drugs and alcohol, um, you know, as a prevention program, right? Because then you have the recovery program if you get to them too late, but why not? Let's go in for the prevention program. My other goal is to go to Capitol Hill and get the the laws changed for advertising alcohol, just like they were changed in the seventies for tobacco. Right. Yeah. So there is hope that that can happen with, you know, the education. And it's sad to say that, you know, we're going to have to watch so many more people die. And, you know, these kids that are dying from their Snapchat dealers, like it is, people are still dying every single day because of it. And it is not given enough attention and it is romanticized through advertising and print, and that needs to be changed. Yeah, more. It sounds like more information, more knowledge, um, and or more reality around it too. <laughs> Instead of the yeah. romanticizing it, um, that's funny. That that makes me think of Disney, Disney princesses, right? How that teaches young girls how to roman- romanticize relationships. It's like, mm-hmm. no, let's get back to the reality of it all. <laughs> Yeah. We, we both know that's not true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Especially when you're emotional, when you're emotionally sober, then you realize it even more. So that, that's how emotional sobriety helps you even more. Right. Um, so tell me more about the key components, components to finding and keeping emotional sobriety. I mean, it sounds like, would you agree that it's an ever ongoing 
process to stay in that emotional sobriety place and hence why you have the phone calls and or the person in front of you and behind you to stay on that train. Yeah. So, you know, some of how to stay in emotional sobriety, it's, it is a daily thing. And when I get the rids, restless, irritable, and discontent, right. Which still, still does happen. Um, as soon as I start to get restless, then you have to halt and it, and you just pause and there's power in the pause and learn how to respond instead of react. And then you go through halt. You say, am I hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? And normally when you start to feel off or a little anxious, hungry, angry, lonely, or tired will satisfy that. Like you either can call somebody, you can drink some water and lay down, you can go for a walk or, you know, take a nap. But when one of those four things are missing, you know, you start to feel off. So if you get the rids, then you halt and, you know, you go through your, your daily prayers and usually, and I can catch myself and bring it back quicker, right. Without any residual damage. Yes. So that's, that is what emotional sobriety is, right? I'm able to identify my thoughts. I'm able to feel mm-hmm. and then pivot, if you will, you know, for lack of a better term, but, yeah, totally. you know, and it's when I'm starting to feel angry or something, it's something inside of me. It's, it's never that the person or the situation. Totally. It's taking responsibility for your feelings and your triggers. Absolutely. I mean, overall, cause people are good people and, um, you know, Everybody just wants to do good. Yes. The world is, and that goes along with affirming that the world is a safe place, which when you're under addiction or the influence of something else, it's hard to see that reality because you're not grounded in it. I mean, yeah. I mean, right now last with this last year, I mean, everybody's been hacked Yeah, and you know, through, through the pandemic, through the election or human rights. And what does it mean to be hacked? It means that something gained unauthorized access to your system or computer. Well, our brain is our largest computer. Our body's made up of many different systems. So how do we stay in a state of recovery, right? To gain that power back of our computer, which is our brain. And during this pandemic, I mean, I took a very firm stance on faith over fear. And it was early on. And I said, you know, I'm going to live in faith over fear. I'm going to be responsible and do what I can. But what was the alternative for me to crawl in bed and be depressed and and be riddled with anxiety and push that off to my daughter? Like that just wasn't an option for me. So I had to stand like this last year, like, you know, called your faith into practice every single day. And, you know, not agreeing with everybody or not going with the floor, not, you know, there's so many people that had fear this year were just riddled with fear. Yeah. And I was able to stay in faith. And when I see what's happening to the kids, the suicide rate, the drug overdoses, you know, all that stuff, I'm just like, it it just comes down from the parent and the parent is the, the mother is the thermometer of the household. Yes. It is your job to dial things back with their, if it's too hot, you, you know, you're the thermometer, you, you bring it back. A comfortable level and to not bring fear into your house. And, you know, I did not bring fear into my house and it was a big disagreement between me and my husband. I said, we will not discuss this every day. This is not going to be part of our life. We're going to go on with our life and just live in our bubble, but just go on with as much of a normal life as we can. Mm-hmm. And 
and we did, you know, and I, I have a healthy kid, uh, emotionally healthy kid. And, you know, I don't regret my choice to, to live in faith. Yeah. Over fear last year. Yeah. And it goes along with what control, what you can control. And oftentimes that is going to dial back to just our response and how we're, and, and how we're going to handle our emotions in the situation. And we know that fear and panic oftentimes doesn't produce great outcomes anyways. Um, and the more calmer you are, the more mind space you have to tackle whatever comes to you. So I, I love that. And I think that emotional yeah. sobriety, definitely it's necessary to, for any response to anything in life. Yeah. And it really came into play for me this year. Um, you know, just to see how strong it was and to flex my spiritual muscles. I mean, yeah. it was, it was daily that I had to do it and, and, to and to keep my family safe, you know, re- emotionally. Yes. Yeah. And I want to get, that's a, uh, where I wanted to lead the conversation actually was into spiritual fitness before we get there. I wanted to talk a little bit about yoga because I feel like yoga really helps with the pause, the response. It's taking care of your body, but it's also taking care of your mind and giving you a lot of the tools to then apply or it gives you space to apply the tools that you learn through the program. And I know you had started yoga actually before you had become sober or on your journey. Um, so were, would you, were you aware of the, I feel like that's a yes, but were you aware of the power of yoga before you went into sobriety? And then how did the process deepen with, with yoga as you became more and more sober? Yeah. So, well, my first yoga experience, um, was probably not like many others, but I had been poolside drinking at a local hotel resort and, I was with a friend and he said, uh, let's go to yoga. And it was when there was the one hot yoga studio in old town, Scottsdale. Yeah. And I was like, sure. Yeah, let's go. Whatever. I, you know, I'm in good shape. I didn't know what yoga was. So we go to the, we go to the studio, we walk in, I'm greeted by somebody, uh, you know, very sleek black hair. She had a great aura about her. She welcomed me. Yeah. And then I walked into the room and, you know, all of a sudden my body started sweating. It was dark. They set up our mats and our in our water. And she said, Oh, just stay on the mat. Just take it easy. And I'm like, I got this. She's like, and then I, they start the class again and they say, Oh, well just stay on the mat. I'm like, why does everybody keep saying, stay on the mat? Why, why are they saying stay on the mat? Right. <laughs> and then it kicks so, in. <laughs> so then we start the, we start the class, you know, arms up over your head, right. And left, right. And left. And, you know, I blacked out. I, I passed out in half moon pose. I fell out. I passed out in the class. I remember this. They, 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 yeah. took, they took me out of the room. I woke up to firemen around me and I had went in there in a state of drunk and dehydration going to my first hot yoga class. <laughs> Didn't the teacher look at your friend? Like, how could you bring her in in this state? <laughs> right. Yes. And cause we had been full side drinking in the Arizona heat, you know, and best. Idea. So that was, that was my first yoga experience. And then I came back a week later and, you know, then of course you're hooked. Right. And then you just start going every day. Yeah, well, then yeah. I went to yoga because I like to 
detox the retox back then, which a, a, a saying that just makes me cringe now, but you know, I would sweat it out and then I would, was right back to drinking every single day. I would yoga every day. I would drink every day. And after I got sober, then I realized how much back pain I was in, um, getting off pills and drinking. And then, so I would go to yoga every day to maintain my back pain Okay. because I didn't want to take any pills. I'm like, okay, well, I can go to yoga today and I can get a, a relief for today. And then the next day, you know, your body kind of settles in and you, you know, you got bone on bone again, and then you feel that pain. And then you're like, okay, so I was going to yoga every day now to maintain my back pain after sobriety. When I finally broke my back, it, it was broken in a couple places. And then it just massively herniated. I was lifting up a laundry basket and I got into the doctor's office. Um, my, my foot was dragging. My husband took me the next day. Oh, wow. And I remember said, the book you'd moved and you were, yeah, I, I, I had been moving for a couple of weeks with movers, but I was just determined to put every little thing in its place in this house. And so I was fatigued yeah. and I went up and over with the laundry basket and pow, my, I just heard massively herniated a disc passed out of my closet. And then the next day, my husband, you know, we went to three different consultations and they said, oh, I can't believe you're standing. Like your bones aren't holding you up. It's your, it's your muscles your, my core was so strong from going to yoga, you know, that that gave me the length and yeah. the space to hold up my spine. That's amazing. My spine, that's, that's amazing. That's an amazing point. It's, but still, <laughs> but I know my, uh, yeah. I mean, I was just, I lived for 20 years in a constant state of dehydration and I believe, you know, strongly and, and there's stats behind it that, um, osteoporosis is related to alcoholism. Right. So you, so your bones are, are constantly being pulled on and aren't nourished. So it's, it's not uncommon for, you know, alcoholics to break their hip and fall down and break stuff because our bones are not strong, mm -hmm. but my, I mm -hmm. had, I had a very strong muscular system. Um, and then, yeah, and then I got back surgery and now I, um, you know, I taught yoga for 20 years, hot, hot yoga, and uh, you know, came from being that passed out student to, you know, <laughs> to teaching all the time and just loving it. Yeah. And now that I'm fixed, right. I have a huge cage in my back, two, eight inch bars and eight screws, L3, L4, L5, S1, a big cage. Wow. I, I only do 80% of the class Yeah. because yeah. my doctor said, he goes, this, he goes, my work is good the good thing is you came into this as healthy as you could, right? You're sober, your weight was, you weren't overweight. So you have a great chance of recovery. You're never going to be back to the flexibility that you were at because you were detached before. Mm -hmm. um, so he said, my work is good. What I'm worried about is you breaking something above it, right? So whenever there's a bend twist, a twist, you know, I just don't twist. You okay. know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I've seen, I've, observed you in classes and, um, seen, and I always, I always encourage students to do their own thing anyways. Um, yeah. but it's still amazing even with, cause I didn't, I actually didn't know that you had had back surgery until I listened to your book. So I, I wouldn't have known because you're, you still have flexibility and you're still very strong. So even with the limit limitations, you still have the best body that you can have in those circumstances. 
Right. And I believe that yoga three times a week is part of my recipe. You know, I just, it's part of my recipe. It's a non-negotiable. I go there, I do what I can. I don't judge myself in the room. I don't compare myself to anybody. You know, I just go and do do what I can. That's um, what yoga is for. That's what yoga is for. And for me now it's for the pause, you know, back how does before I did yoga for like a different reason. So it's interesting watching my yoga practice evolve spiritually, right? Because before I was more aesthetically, I was going for to look good or to fit into something, you know, the external. So it sounds like you move from the external to more the internal focus. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Which it's, it's really, I think it's a huge part of the journey and of, and the practice of yoga. When we allow our mind to expand to that point, And so it's really interesting to see how you were going through this journey of sobriety and yoga hand in hand. And how would you say that that influenced or impact impacted your spiritual fitness? And if we could give a brief definition of that term as well, because that's a frequent term that you bring up in your book. Um, And I think it goes hand in hand with recovery, with uh, emotional sobriety, really with all of it. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Sorry. Yeah. Were you waiting for I was thinking about adding more to that, but I was like, no, leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. So spiritual fitness is, you know, how you flex your spiritual muscles daily. And how I do that is through those five things, okay. um, water, yes. sleep, yeah. eat movement and connection. And then you get out, be of service to others and, you know, keep your side of the street clean every day. So that is my emotional sobriety. Just yes. in a quick, quick nutshell. Yeah. And your the spiritual fitness, would you say that goes along with it or is that more your prayers? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think spiritual fitness for me, spiritual fitness is, you know, it's moving meditation, whether it's on the yoga mat, or it's whether it's taking a walk outside, it's, you know, flexing your spiritual muscles in a way of be- connecting every day. Okay. So it's just a matter of connecting to a higher power every day, whatever that looks like for you. Yes. And how would you say that that not influenced you in your book, you mentioned that the spiritual fitness is really important for sobriety in itself. Do you feel like it's the feeling of trust that it gives you in something outside of yourself to help, help you make it through? Because Almost, I feel like when we're in addiction, we can get stuck in this point with all those feelings, right? Where we don't see a way out and we don't, there's a a lack of trust. So that spiritual muscle becomes necessary to almost just to surrender and be held and have a belief that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and there's another way. Yeah, because I believe that the opposite of addiction is connection. You know, when you're in your addiction, you're isolated, you're lonely, you're, you're in your own head and just to be connected is practicing your spiritual fitness. And, you know, I host a few meetings a week just in right now on the platform clubhouse, just to stay connected and to give back. And, you know, I wouldn't have it any other way. I love that. I love, I love that analogy of connected versus addicted. And it's so it's 
totally true. And even just thinking about it, when you're in addiction, your mind is completely closed, right? Um, you're in yep. your head, just completely shut off. But when you're connected, you're, you're open, you're expanded, you're one with the universe. Yeah. And anything's possible, right? She believed she could, and she did. Totally. I just love that quote. You know, I, when I'm coaching my young girls or whatever, like I always say, there's two different ways I say that I say, whether you believe you can or you can't, you're right. Yes. It's all, or about she believes. Yeah. Or she believes she could, and she did, yeah. Yeah. you know, so it's how, how do you build somebody up and support them and you know when you're in your spiritual fitness i believe that god brings ideas to you but he might bring them through you if you don't act on them right and he might bring them to somebody else and then you're sitting on the couch watch with the friend and your friends going i had that idea i had that idea yeah well god brings these ideas to you but you actually have to take action yeah. right and then so when, when you're feeling that calling how to act on it. Yeah. It's, it's synonymous to meeting the, the universe halfway. You have to put your action into it for the universe to then carve the path instead of not acting onto it. That's right. I mean, no. and you're reaching so many people through your podcast and, and you I mean, you're taking action and, and, and you teach and it's just amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And that's always been, I feel strongly the words give back because it's, it's a, a mutually synergistic energy. Um, and when you're, you're doing things, not just for yourself and it's bigger than you, it takes on a whole new meaning, just knowing the impact that you can have on others. Um, so I'm, I love that you also are big on giving back. And I've, it's also reminds me of the mindset of abundance versus scarcity. When we're in an abundance mindset, we know that there's more than enough to give around. And that's, that would go into spiritual fitness is yes. you need the spiritual fitness to have an abundance mindset and not come from a lack point of view in knowing that you're, you're doing this because it's it's higher and it's more than you. And what we give out comes back to us always. Yes. Always. Yeah. And I really believe that, you know, during this time of, during the pandemic, it was people were living in scarcity and it, it was then when you can like, no, we, we have everything we need to survive. We need for nothing. Like let's go live. Yeah. You know, it was the time to live and recalibrate everything. And it, you know, I had one of the best years of my life last year and it, it feels uncomfortable saying that sometimes because I know people were without and people had very hard times. There was a lot of hardship, Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to change my story, you know, or play small to fit others. You know, I, I, I published during the pandemic. I became number one bestseller. I won an award. I kept my family healthy mentally, you know, and I believe that only because of my sobriety and my spiritual fitness, that was all in play. And it was almost like I was ready for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, totally. It's it like you said, we, we you just said this. It's all about your mindset. And how are you going to view this the world? Is it for you or is it against you? Right. And whatever you believe, you're going to see because that's your mindset. That's right. 
it all starts with mindset. And well, then it's also, well, how are people going to view this? First of all, it doesn't really matter because internal, external, but also there are those that are going to either see it as a light and why worry about the ones that don't. Um, but it's, it is, it's all about mindset and the world is for us, not, not against us. And so tell me, I feel like this is a good leading into living from joy because there's also the aspect of cultivating joy in our lives that goes hand in hand with the self-love, with emotional sobriety, with spiritual fitness. And the more we find the joy and see the joy, then the more we're going to cultivate that in our lives. So what would you say has been elements of cultivating more joy in your life and, and um, maybe bringing up, I can't, your neighbor, I was, I can't remember her name, but she was the one that helped that brought you into the meetings and then became your sponsor. Oh yeah. Um, and you always said like, she always seemed so joyful. She seemed so they call it happy, joyous and free. And she had this thing about her. And I was like, how does she have that? Like, what does she have? And what does she know that I don't know? You know, like, and then, and then to learn that it was sobriety, um, you know, it's just amazing. But I, back to the joy, how do you cultivate joy daily? I mean, for me, it's in the little things of being able to take my shoes off and walk in the grass and uh, play catch with my daughter. You know, it's, it's walking the dog. It's, it's, finding joy in those little things or the birds that are flying into my pool right now, the ducks, right? Because it's migrating because it's cold other places. So all the ducks are here. Like I see those ducks land and I'm like, that's so joy. That's so joyful to me. Yeah. It sounds like presence. Yeah. And like, we call it God shots, you know, it's just like a God shot and like, and be able to see that. And when you're in a state of survival, you, you can't see that. Or when you're in a, a chaotic state and, you know, a lot of parents run around in, in a chaotic state and I intentionally try to parent on purpose, um, which is another great book that one of my friends wrote called parent on purpose. But reading that book after I got sober gave me a guidebook of, okay, you don't have to have function in chaos, you know, yeah. no matter how many kids you have around. And you can be intent and be present with your child. Yeah. So I mean, that's part of back to spiritual fitness in in parenting, you know, and emotional sobriety as well. Um, Knowing your own feelings and being able to process your feelings in a healthy way. Because if you're not aware, if you're not feeling, you're going to transmit that feeling to everybody around you, that is going to be your vibration, including your kids. And then you will be acting from that place because our feelings dictate our thoughts, dictate our behavior. Um, so just even just owning, I, I really think that all go hand in hand. You, you have to have the spiritual fitness. You have to have the self-care. You have to have recognize your emotions. So feel, um, so that then you can cultivate that it's quality time. It's intentionally parenting and spending quality time with your children. Yeah. And I really believe that, you know, what's important for us is to get this message into teenagers and into the youth, right? Because it, it will just save so much heartache and hardship. If we can teach kids, like they should be teaching this stuff in school, spiritual fitness, 
and, you know, abundance and mindset and, you know, social maturity, you know, these five basic things you can do for yourself. And what's happening to our youth of today is that they're getting hacked, you know, like by technology and by artificial intelligence. And it's not their fault. It's what's just happening to us as a society. If you're not able to identify it. Uh, Did you see that movie called the social dilemma? No, I've heard a lot about it though. I mean, it, it just explains what's happening and, um, you know, the algorithms that they create and, and all that stuff. And it, you know, we have to teach how to become unhackable, how to not let something else gain access to our system or computer, our brain, our feelings. Yeah. I love that. And that goes to say it is like, we have a breakdown in society that I also believe needs to be addressed. And I got chills, as you said, teens, because I don't know if you know this about me, but that I want to eventually evolve into building a teen program with yoga and confidence building and how to say no and setting boundaries and knowing what you're thinking and feeling and validating um, those and basically coaching yourself through your own emotions. Um so I got chills as you said that, because I also, I also think the same thing and as well as the programs in the school, because here's the realistic thing of our world is it, back in the day, it used to take a village. Um, now we're so isolated in our own little units and life can be chaotic and it, it shouldn't have to rest only on the parents. So what if, yes, let's maybe look at adult programs too. But what if we had programs for children that we were giving them as they're raised? How would that change the world? <laughs> like, imagine the possibility, just like if everybody did yoga. Well, what if we helped our teens with these, these basic little knowledge bombs and we coached them? How would that change the world? What new possibilities would exist if we had people walking around with clear minds and calm minds and knew how to get back to that state? Well, you know, I bring my daughter to yoga. I mean, she's been, she's been in hot yoga since she was in the womb. Right. (laughs) And then I practiced the whole time I was pregnant. And then I, you know, did mommy and me yoga, whatever. But now that she's uh, 10 years old, you know, you've seen her come into the hot rooms Yep. and you know, we should just do a, uh, what do you call a free class or whatever and offer it to teens. Yes. Yeah. And and parents too. Why not come both? Yeah. 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 I recently started bringing my daughters actually did their first yoga class with me last week. Um, Oh, wonderful. I can't, I can't wait to meet them. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cute. I know I haven't brought them into the heated room yet, um, but we're, we're working up to that point. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. How old are your kids? They're six and eight. Oh, nice. So my eight-year-old it was really funny to watch my six-year-old kind of, she did like three poses and then late, she stayed on her mat. She laid on her mat. She laid on her back and she was kind of a little ham and had her feet up in the air, just kind of watching everybody, but she stayed on her mat and my eldest, her little wanting to do everything perfectly, getting frustrated with herself, which is something her own mom is working on, but it was it was funny to watch it in my daughter because uh, she would get frustrated when she couldn't do like downward dog or warrior. So I was coaching her along and just reminding her, Hey, that it's, that's what, that's what the journey is. <laughs> is learning to relax into it 
do what you can be present to what you can do. Love yourself where you're at and let the rest evolve. So it was a great, it was a great experience for everybody. And I love that um, in your book, one of the, the ending chapters, you bring up everything that you learned from your athlete days and how that's helped you in life. And here's where I think the tools that we do learn, because I mean, sports or fitness can be a way of coping with trauma as well. But here's where the beauty of the trauma comes forward and through is when we can then use it in our clear, sober um, space as gifts to help us for life. And the term peaceful warrior, you describe your daughter as her own little peaceful warrior on mornings. Thanks to all of the, the tools that sports gave you and the, the preparation, essentially, would you mind just quickly running through those for listeners? Um, and then how it's helped you have more quality present time with your daughter? Yeah. So the first one's time. And I, um, the acronym I use for time is things I must earn. So I, I always thought like, okay, if I do this, if I get good grades, then I can do what I want. Right. So if I get good grades, then I can play sports. If I get good grades, then I can go to the batting cages, whatever. Right. So things that I must earn. So having time and we have a saying in our house that early is on time, on time's late and late's unacceptable. So we just believe that, you know, showing up prepared and showing up early is being on time. Yeah. And that allows for something unplanned, like a car accident or something on the way to school, you know, and then you're not, you don't have anxiety because you, you, you padded it a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then commitment, you know, um, the thing that I love about sports teams is that there's a beginning and an end, right? So if you can just make that commitment for those nine weeks to be part of that team, to be something bigger, and no matter who you are to those teammates, off the field for that nine weeks on the field, you are working towards one common goal. So the commitment of the beginning of the, and the end. And I believe that, you know, the Bible addresses the beginning and the end and, you know, there's Easter and Christmas and, you know, everything has their, their time commitment and their season. And I think that you learn that through sports. Um, And then just the part of being team and no matter what, you know, finishing out the season, even if you're hurt, um, you still, stick by and support, um, your teammates. And, um, that's, that's pretty much the main big three things that I would take away from sports. Yeah. Yeah. Time, team and commitment. Yeah. And And visualization is the last one. We, I, early on, we had like a sports psychologist come and give us this exercise when we were in the batting box of, you know, hitting the ball, seeing yourself hitting the ball. And that, that also, I mean, it's, exactly what you're saying about the mindset of abundance. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to be able to visualize yourself doing something. So things are first conceived in the mind and then, and then in real life. So visualization. Yeah. And that I would say that goes along with focus because you, you can focus, you can choose your focus on what you'll focus on. So we could, um, choose it on worst case scenarios or what we didn't do or what we can't do. Or we could pivot and focus on what we can do, what we can control, um, where we, we want to go. 
So using the, how are we going to use the mind? Because the mind really is one of our greatest tools. Yeah. Where your focus goes, your energy flows. Yeah. So you have to be very careful of your thoughts and very careful. Yeah, totally. It all starts in the mind. And I love that yoga is really a space to help you with that, especially I feel like there's a movement in the yoga world and I'm fairly new. So maybe it's always been there. I started teaching only in May and I started training about, I've been practicing for four years, but yoga is a great space where it builds your awareness. It builds your consciousness. It makes you more aware of your thoughts. It makes you spend time with yourself. Um, and so it can, it can help you train, train your tool, train, train your mind as a tool. Yes, they can. Yeah. Yoga is invaluable in it. it. They should, everybody should learn yoga, you know, movement, meditation. That's it. That's all I think of yoga. You know, when I think of yoga, it's movement and meditation, whatever that looks like for anybody. And it can be different on different days too. That's different, right. It's different days. Well, tell me more about uh, any like upcoming programs, what kind of services you offer clients? Cause I know you work one-on-one with them and, um, any upcoming workshops. Um, and I also believe you have another book coming out. So share a little bit more about all of those, please. Okay. Well, my first most exciting thing is supporting the youth, as you know, so I'm hosting a charity event um, for the sold out youth foundation. And there's going to be three authors here. And one of the other authors is a teen author and she's the youngest author published in my publishing house. And I'm just so happy to have her here. We're going on book tour together, but, um, there's an event coming up. Um, so I I'd love for you to make it and we'll hopefully we can post it. And, um, you know, it's a charity event to support the sold out youth foundation. So we can go into high schools and, um, get the message of prevention out, you know, prevention. I love Um, it. Is that, sorry to interrupt, but is that, um, is she the author of unhackable? No, she's the author of twin tales. Okay. Okay. And then I'm an unhackable certified coach. So I teach that is part of a 30 day program that I coach you how to be unhackable. And I have an eight week program to go along with that. So you, you know, quit to win, you stop the substance. So what, so how do you close the gap down between dreaming and doing, um, my audio book just came out. So you, you can download that and you can find me at crystalwaltman.com. And I, if it's okay with you, Christina Lynn, I'd like to, you know, give the readers a, a book and, I'll give you a link to put in the show notes. Absolutely. Thank you. I have have a few, you know, giveaways and free downloads on my website. So we'll just load that up in the show notes, but yeah, you can just find me on my website and um, I'm around, I'm on clubhouse, you know, I'm out there. So I'm not hard to find. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Crystal. I really appreciate you doing that. Um, And I'll make sure to post all that info in the show notes, uh, with the show. And also when I post, I typically post on both my Instagram and my Facebook, which is Christina Lynn underscore wellness on Instagram, Christina Lynn wellness on Facebook. So viewers or listeners will have a couple different areas where they can, they can find you and then also claim, claim. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. my, My Instagram is crystal clear fit. So, and then there's a link tree and you can find all the stuff through there or crystalwaltman.com. Okay. And I'll post that. I'll post that as well. And then any last little like words of insight or anything you'd like to 
share with listeners kind of as a closing note? No, just whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, well, thank you so much for your time, Crystal. I really enjoyed our episode today. Um, And I'm sure I'll see you sometime soon in the studio. Thanks, Christina Lynn. All right, you're welcome. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the House of Minds. Cheers to mind expansion and until